we are in a series, we're going through the book of Acts. And, uh, and today is a very special day in the life, really in the book of Acts, because it's the day that the Spirit falls. So if you'll remember, in Acts chapter 1, the disciples are waiting for the Spirit. Scriptures say that, that, uh, that Jesus called them to wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit came. And, and today the text that we're looking at is actually a text that's all about the birth uh, of the church. Speaking of birth, uh, we know a little, a thing or two about that as a family. We have four kids, and I remember our first child that we had, and by the way, I have, I've ran this by my wife, so I just want you guys to know that before I mention anything about birthing a baby, because I really don't know anything about it, if I'm honest, right? No clue about it. So we are going, you know, we got this birth plan uh, to, to, to have this first child, and we've got a great plan. It's like three pages long. We've got all this stuff. You know, Lamaze classes, anybody been to Lamaze classes before? Guys, did that freak you out or what? I mean, learning how to breathe. I've seen videos there at the Lamaz classes I never care to see again. I mean, lots of crazy stuff at those classes. Lots of information you get, though. We get into labor and delivery, and it's interesting because, you know, the Bible talks about, you know, childbirth is going to be painful. And I think, you know, you maybe have a, an idea about what painful childbirth is before you go in. We go in, and it's like the birth plan kind of goes out the window once the contractions start to hit. And those of you that are ladies in the room start, you're shaking your head because you've had children. You know what that's like. But, you know, I had this birth plan that I was committed to because my wife told me, hey, if it gets hard, I don't want an epidural. I don't want any pain medicine. I'm going to have this child naturally. So we're getting on in the process a little bit. And I'm standing beside her like a good husband holding her hand. And all of a sudden I feel what uh, feels like a stabbing pain in my wrist. As I'm standing there beside her and her claw marks are in, she's got her claws into my arm saying, give me the epidural, give me the epidural. And I'm like, honey, honey, remember you knew this was going to come. You don't need the epidural. You can do this. And it goes on for a few more minutes. And like, I, st- I think I still have the scars in my arm for how intense it got there for a moment. Childbirth is beautiful and messy and sometimes unexpected. A couple of our friends uh, within a year uh, had some crazy birth stories. Uh, some, somebody's laughing already because they know the story. But one of the people, uh, one of our friends, they were having their child. They were on the way to the hospital. Uh, the husband's driving the wife. She's sitting in the back of the, the van and getting ready to, to have the child. He pulls up. He doesn't know where to go at the hospital. So valid. He pulls up into the little, you know, the little pull through that you can kind of park it for a second and not get towed. He goes in to, to ask them, hey, where should I go? He comes back. When he comes back to his wife in the van, she is holding the baby in the back seat of the van. I think it's pretty safe to say they're going to be keeping that van. You think that's a good one. Another friend of ours had going into labor. Uh, They're on the way to the hospital. It's a little bit of a drive to get to the hospital. Uh, she says, hey, I need you to stop right now. And the husband's like, oh, we're, we're pretty close. We can get there. The husband stops. They uh, walk into Kroger. I think he's going to maybe call a paramedic or something like that. Literally, guys, they have the baby in the front of Kroger. It's on the news if you want to look it up. It's crazy. Not the actual birth, but the story. Uh, in the front of Kroger, you know where you get the cart. They have the baby where you get the cart. Can you imagine what I'm going in to get a gallon of milk? All of a sudden, there is a baby coming out of the front of Kroger. Crazy stuff. Birth is messy. Birth is beautiful. Today we're talking about the birth of the church. Uh, So if you would stand with me as we make a hard transition to Acts chapter 2 and read verses 1 
uh, through 13. Let's stand in honor of God and His Word. I'm going to read Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 for us. Now, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now we were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Let's pray. Our Father, we we love Your Word. We sit under Your Word this morning and we seek uh, for Your Spirit to bring revelation from this Word to our hearts, to speak to us this morning. We've all come in with different things that are weighing and pressing in on us, but I'm confident that Your Word will address that in each of us this morning. So give us attentive hearts and ears uh, to what You'll say through Your Word this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So we're going to kind of look at two, two points that I want to draw out of the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts uh, chapter 2. The, the first one is this, the scattering of God's people. We were born into sin and confusion. The second part that we're going to get to in a second is the regathering of God's people. They've been reborn into grace. You see, I think for us to, to fully understand Acts 2 as much as we can, I think we can't start with Acts 2. And Don't you love it when the preacher says, hey, we're going to talk about Acts 2, but hey, let's go and talk about something else first. I feel like we have to do that this morning because God's Word is so beautiful that it's like this kind of unfolding rose as we see God's covenant play out through the history uh, of time. And, and we got to look at Genesis 11 today because there's something that God is doing in Acts chapter 2 that addresses what has happened in Genesis 11. So let's turn to Genesis 11 and look at verses 1 through 9 just real briefly here. Many of you will be familiar with, uh, with this passage of Scripture here. And to give you the context, you know, the, the flood has just happened. God has wiped uh, every family off the face of the earth except for Noah and his family. Um, and from that time, the earth has been repopulated to some extent. And lo and behold, Genesis 3, the fall of man, sin has taken root in man's heart once again. And this is where we pick up in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen and for mortar. And then 
Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. Let us make a name for ourselves. Remember that. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower with the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off the building of the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, which sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for confusion, because their name, because their, the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. So, so why am I reading Genesis chapter 11? I think what God is doing in Acts chapter 2 is He is unraveling the curse of what has happened in Genesis chapter 11. And I want to sh- I'm going to show you that throughout this, this whole sermon. But, 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 but see it like this. I mean, in Genesis chapter 11, the, it begins with one language. They all speak the same language. They can all understand one another. There's this unity that they have in language. They can communicate well with one another because they all speak the same language. We notice in verse 4 that, that language for them, though, was, a, was, was used to promote the human agenda. What they wanted to do with that is to make a name for themselves. Now, they were God's people. Why did they need to make a name for themselves? Because sin was running rampant in their hearts. So what does God do as they're trying to make a name for themselves? He has a kind of a counsel within Himself And he decides to do this, to scatter his people all over the face of the earth by confusing the language because of the sinful agenda that the people had. And then how does Genesis 11, 1-9 end? Well, it ends with confusion of the language and disunity of the people. So it starts with unity, ends with disunity. That's the story of humanity, folks. That's, That's the story of the people of God. Do you find yourself struggling with some area of confusion in your life where you have no idea what God is doing? You know that He's sovereign, but why have you taken me on this rabbit trail, God, of trying to figure out what you're doing? Do you, do you struggle to see what God's doing in the midst of that? God, here's what I've noticed about Genesis chapter 11 is God, this was ultimately an act of God's grace. Think about it like this. God was thwarting their self-salvation project that they were trying to do for themselves. They were trying to save themselves to build a tower to heaven so nothing could be impossible for them. They were trying to make a name for themselves. Isn't that the exact same thing that we try to do in the flesh? We all have our babbles, don't we? We all have the things in our life that we're trying to use to make a name for ourselves, whether it be our reputation, whether it be our job or our family. We're trying to make a name for ourselves. It's a self-salvation project in some way, shape, or form. And sin has hit us all differently. But one thing's for sure. We all, in one degree or another, have a confused part of our life and we are wondering what in the world God is doing in the midst of that. And what I've noticed about this passage in Babel is that it was ultimately gracious because you know what Babel did to the Israelites? It drove them to Himself. 
They couldn't make sense of life. They couldn't make sense of all of the things that were happening because they were confused. They were scattered throughout the world because of sin. And God used this in a gracious manner to draw them to Himself. So what is it in your life right now that God is using that seems confused and and riddled with questions that God might be using to draw you deeper into Himself right now? I want you to ask yourself that question as we continue on uh, this morning. So let's see how this plays out in the book of Acts because I think ultimately uh, that it does. So let's, let's go now to the regathering of God's people in grace. They've been scattered because of sin, but now they're regathered uh, because of grace. So God, God begins to bring peace in the midst of chaos in Acts chapter 2. And He manifests Himself to His people. Now, the Holy Spirit was present before this. Was it not? I mean, think about in Genesis 1 and 2 when the Spirit is hovering over the waters. The Holy Spirit's present at creation. He's always been. He's a person. He's present. Or, or how about David in Genesis, I'm sorry, not in Genesis, in Psalms chapter 51 when David is repenting and he says, Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. David had the Spirit with him. Or how about John the Baptizer? Whenever he is in the womb, when he's in his mother's womb, the Scripture said that he was converted in the womb and given the Holy Spirit in the womb. The Spirit was around before Acts chapter 2. Here's the difference. It just wasn't the norm for the follower of God to experience the reality of who God was to the degree that the Spirit enables us to do so. So, let's look at Acts chapter 2, verse 1. We're just going to walk through this and we're going to draw some practical implications as we, as we kind of dissect uh, these 13 or so verses here. So, Pentecost. What is Pentecost? Well, Pentecost means 50th. And what was going on in Jerusalem at this time is there, were, there was this feast of weeks that were going on. So, in Jewish culture, there are three feasts. And in, during those feasts, the, the Israelites are are required or strongly encouraged to come back for those feasts. Pentecost was one of the days in the Feast of Weeks. The, the Feast of Weeks was this festival of first fruits or provision. So basically the Feast of Weeks was, was a time to celebrate the work that God had done. Just like the Passover, when they came into town for the Passover, the Passover was a time to celebrate deliverance from the Egyptians, from the dominion of sin and slavery that it led to. And the Feast of Weeks is a time to celebrate provision. So here we have on Pentecost, the the 50th day after the ascension of Christ, here we have Jesus giving them His Spirit that He's promised. The fascinating thing about this is I looked this week at the Scriptures and looked at some just, just honestly just biblical history was that it was believed that on the day of Pentecost, it was, it was the exact same day that the law was given on Mount Sinai. The same day that the law was given hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before. It's the same day that the Spirit's given. And I think there's something that's really significant about that for us. Because we need, we need the Spirit of God to bring the truth of, about God, the law, the Word of God, to, to, to come to bear on our hearts and be reality to us. But, because here's the truth. Here's what happens on Pentecost is that all of the knowledge about God is actualized. It comes to be a reality in the heart. It, it, it comes to, 
to, to this experience where they're able to, to feel, taste, touch what God is doing in their midst. And for all of us, that's our deep desire to experience God, is it not? We want to experience Him. We don't want to just know about God. We want to experience His person and His presence. And that's just what Pentecost inaugurates for us. We notice that the disciples are together, likely in this upper room. There's likely 120 people that the Spirit falls on this day in Acts chapter 2. And they're in this upper room. And there's this togetherness, which begins to be a major theme of the book of Acts, that, that, the, that they were together. And why were they together? Because everything in life that mattered to them, they shared together. And we'll see that in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. They were together because there was nothing more pressing in their lives than being with their Lord. And the Spirit made that a possibility for them every single day to experience the power of God in life. The power of His presence in everyday life. We see in, in verses 2-4 through four as we kind of continue trucking along here. You know, we can ask ourselves this question, is, is, this, is this a prescriptive experience for believers in Jesus? Should we experience this same kind of power, this same kind of supernaturalism that happens in Acts chapter 2 as believers? Is this something that we should experience? Because if we're honest with ourselves, I think sometimes we'll doubt what God is doing because it's like we can't feel Him, we can't see Him, we can't experience what God is doing. And I would say that the Scriptures in no way, shape, or form say that we should expect for this exact kind of thing to happen when the Spirit comes upon our lives at conversion. But what we can expect... Uh, you know, it's, you know the, 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 the fire, the, uh, the wind, the languages, they were, they were kind of extraordinary things. But the joy, the power, the togetherness, the unity, the oneness of heart is something that we can take advantage of every single day. Those are, those are realities of the Holy Spirit being with us that we get to experience every single day, are they not? The fruit of the Spirit. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. Self-control, those are things that we get to experience every day because God is with us. So though we might not have this experience of Pentecost with the, the wind blowing in the entire city, wondering what's going on and these different languages being spoken uh, to people's hearts, we might not experience that, but we can experience the presence of God through the power of His Spirit at work in us. He brings us all into this experience with God. So let's just kind of break this down. There's, let's look at the, what, why would the wind be blowing when the Spirit comes? What is wind in the Scriptures? Why is that significant that there was this sound like a mighty rushing wind? Well, if you remember in Acts chapter 1-8, the Scriptures say that, <clears throat> that, that you'll receive power, dunamis, dynamite power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And that power is for what? To be His witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So, you'll receive this power. Is wind not a thing of power? This is God fulfilling that reality and even making it present as the Spirit comes to them. I think about Jesus in the boat with His disciples when, uh, when a storm, a squall comes up on the Sea of Galilee. The disciples are a little bit terrified, are they not? And you and I would be terrified too if a storm comes up and Jesus, the only one that can do something, is sleeping in the back of the boat. We're, we're going to be a little bit frustrated. But Jesus, when he, when he rises up at the sound of the disciples' voice, what does He do? He stills the storm. 
Because Eve has even power over the most powerful thing in their mind, which was the wind, which was the waves, the things that they were terrified of in life. You think about this. You know, it says that the divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. When John the Baptist is, 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 is baptizing those in, in Matthew 4 that would, with this baptism of repentance, he says something along the lines of, I'm not even worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. That I must decrease, He must increase. He goes on to say something like, when Jesus comes, He's going to baptize with what? The Spirit and with fire. Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy here. This, this literal, like the sight of fire is falling down on them. What, is, what does fire do? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What is, why is fire such a prevalent theme in the Scriptures? Well, fire purifies. You think about Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah comes to the Lord, the, the Lord, I'm sorry, rather, the angel of the Lord comes to him and he touches his lips with this coal, this really hot live coal. And it kind of sears his lips a little bit. And, and what does Isaiah claim at that point? He says, I'm, an unclean, I'm a man with unclean lips and I dwell among a people that also have unclean lips. And at that point, God is meeting him and purifying him. This is what the Spirit does. It purifies us as the work of Jesus is applied to our life. What, what else does fire do? It, it, it shows presence. The presence of God. So you think about passages like Hebrews chapter 12, I think verse 29 where he says that our Lord is like a consuming fire. Or you think about passages like Exodus chapter 3 where Moses meets the Lord in a burning bush. And it's not consumed, it's just constant. Or you think about passages in Leviticus where, where God lights the fire of the altar and the priests are told that they have to keep that fire going. Fire symbolizes this presence of God. The Holy Spirit for us, friends, is the proof, is the guarantee, is the deposit, as the Scriptures say, of the presence of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I have doubted the presence of God in my life. Even this last week, I have doubted His presence in my life. What do we do when we doubt the presence of God in our lives? We have to be reminded that the Holy Spirit is with us. That He's, that he's a comforter. That He comes to dwell among us and remind us of all the things that Jesus has come to do that have applied to our lives. This is what Jesus does. This is what His Spirit does. This is why it's significant for His Spirit to come upon us. Then we read in Acts chapter 2, verses 5-12 through that there's this, there's this place of tongues of fire coming and rest upon each of them. So we see that the Spirit of God is it's this corporate thing for believers in Jesus, but it's also this personal thing, isn't it? We don't just experience the Spirit's power when we're together. We also experience the Spirit's power when we're, when we're alone, when we're praying in our closets as Jesus instructs us to do. It's, it's a corporate and it's a personal thing. And, and I think the way that the Spirit falls helps remind us uh, of that as well. So, uh, I'm not going to go into detail about, uh, about tongues here because we did that a couple months ago. So if you're, if you're, if you're curious on what we, what we think, what our position is on the miraculous gift of speaking in tongues, I want to encourage you to go uh, check out a sermon. We'll, we'll put that in the email this week if y'all want to go back and, and check that out. But, but anyway, the, the Greek word for tongues is also the same word that's used for languages. 
I think here it's, it's un, I mean, it's, uh, I think it's very clear that here the word for tongues is really meant for languages. Because what happens as the Spirit falls upon these guys that are up in the upper room? What happens? They begin to speak in what? Different languages. And the thing that's so amazing to the people that are around is what? That these are ordinary Galileans. Galileans is kind of like the hill country outside of the city, you know what I mean? It's like being from rural Kentucky, like where I'm from. Like if I came in and I was speaking a bunch of different languages, you'd be like, what's up? The Holy Spirit's on this guy. Something's going on here. I know he's not that smart. These guys are ordinary average Joes from, from Galilee. They've come into Jerusalem. They're waiting on the Spirit. They're from Galilee. That's what's so amazing about it. So they hear this sound. They, maybe they feel that what, the, what the presence of fire is. I don't know. The Scripture doesn't give us a lot of, of clear detail on that. But the thing that draws the crowd is the fact that the Spirit is speaking in a language that they can understand. And what is that Spirit declaring? The mighty works of God. It's declaring the mighty works of God to their Spirit. And so they come around those disciples. And it's this experience where maybe maybe the mighty works of God had not been for them because they'd been for the Jews. So we've got everybody kind of gathered around. I don't know who's in Jerusalem at this time. I mean, it says every nation uh, under heaven is present. Most of them are, are Jews probably, but, but maybe some are not. I, I'm not sure. So, so at this time, they, they come together and they're gathered around and they were amazed and astonished. And they said, aren't these Average, ordinary Joes from Kentucky. I mean, Galilee. And how is it that we hear each of them in our own native language? And then he goes through and he lists all the places. I want to briefly show you a map of all of the places that are listed here because I think it's really helpful. So if you look up on the screen, we see him listing from east to west all of these places. He says Parthians in the east, Medes, Elamites, residents of the region of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging, Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. They're all hearing about the wonderful work of God. And friends, this is the known world at this time. Like to them, Rome, we, we said this a couple weeks ago, but Rome would have been like the ends of the world to them. They didn't know anything else existed. Rome was like, you know, it was, it, was, it was it. And so we see that everyone in the world, everyone in the world is kind of represented in Jerusalem during this feast on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit falls and they hear something that they've never heard before. Because the one true God of Israel had not been before, for them before, at least in their minds, but now they hear Him speaking in a personal way. That the Gospel is not just for the Jews, but it's for the Greeks. That it's for the Gentiles. It's for everyone. And so we see God's plan evolving and expanding His covenant opening deeper and deeper. And that's evidenced by the fact that they're hearing the wonderful, mighty works of God spoken in their own language. Be like going to Clarkston and everybody hearing the mighty works of God spoken in their own language like in a simultaneous experience. It's a wild experience. But isn't that what God does? 
Doesn't he meet us where we're at? Doesn't he speak a language that we can understand? Doesn't he address the posture of our hearts? Doesn't he address the sin that we're dealing with in our lives with the cross? That's what God does is he meets us. It's been a heavy week in the life of New City this week. Many of you know that. It's been heavy. There's been lots of pastoral things that are going on even in this seemingly you know, pretty, pretty modest-sized church. God is meeting us in the midst of those. That's what His Spirit does. Is he meets us in the midst of all of those things. And then there's this response, right? There's this response after they hear the mighty works of God in verses 12 and 13. And what is that response? And all were amazed and perplexed It says all, but I don't see how it was all because some of them are mocking. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. So there's two responses to the mighty works of God. What does this mean? We see that happen again in Acts chapter 2. Next week we'll look at it. It says that they were cut to the heart. When you have an experience with God, when God meets you, that's the question that you ask. What am I going to do with this? What am I going to do with the fact that I'm not running from God, that He has met me in my running? What am I going to do with that? I've been Jonah. I've been headed for Tarshish my whole life. And here God has met me in the belly of a fish. What am I going to do with that? That's, that's our response. So we either brush it off and we say, ah, they're filled with new wine. That really wasn't God that met me there. Or we say, what are we going to do with this? What do we do with the fact that God is meeting us where we're at. See, there's a danger in crediting spiritual work to humanity. And I think that we probably do it far more often than we think of. Speaking to my friend Andrew this morning, we pray typically every day, uh, every Sunday uh, before we preach. He's in Kentucky. We're here in Georgia, obviously. And he said, he said this, we naturalize the supernatural. That's what we're prone to do is to naturalize the supernatural. Now, does the Spirit always come like this? No, it won't even come like this in the book of Acts every time when it comes, when the Spirit is, is poured out. And as the Spirit fills our lives, it will come in different ways. But there, there is one response that we have to have. What are we going to do with this? Do we believe that Jesus Christ has come for us? That He's, that he's died on the cross for my sin? That I put Him up there? And that, and that there's hope because the blood still flows and He makes intercession for us to the Father as he's seated at his right hand. Do we really believe that? What are we going to do with Jesus? I think we're probably most prone to naturalize the supernatural in relationships. I think about, I think about my relationships that I have uh, with most of you in here and, and many people that are not a part of New City. And I'm tempted to think that it's just kind of coincidence. You know what God is beginning to show me more and more? People are gifts. Relationships are gifts to be stewarded. I mean, is that not the reason that the languages came at Pentecost? So that there could be unity with God, which is a relationship, and unity with one another, which is a relationship? Friends, have you considered the fact that the people that are in your life are gifts from God, for better or for worse, to sanctify you and to make you in the image of Jesus, make you more into the image of Jesus? But we'll just say, you know, that's just the guy that sits down a couple cubes for me. The office. Oh yeah, that, that neighbor just kind of moved in because the house next door to me was a foreclosure. Or oh yeah, that, kid, uh, that, that kid's parents are just, we're just happen to be part of the same soccer team. Or, or this or that. We'll naturalize the supernatural when God is placing people into our lives, gifts to be stewarded, and we sit back thinking, you know, this is pure coincidence. 
What would it look like for us to steward the gifts of God that are right in front of us, friends? What would that look like? What would that look like? I just want to share a few practical implications of Acts chapter 2 as we, as we kind of wrap this up today. I want to show you kind of a, a chart paralleling what's happened in Genesis chapter 11 and, and what's happening in Acts chapter 2. And I want you to think about the work of the Gospel and how God has met His people. So in the Tower of Babel, we see that it begins with one language. At the day of Pentecost, as we see God entering in even more through His Son and giving His Spirit, that it begins with multiple languages. We see that language is used to promote the human agenda in the Tower of Babel. And at the day of Pentecost, language is used to tell about the mighty works of God. We see at the Tower of Babel that God scatters His people all over the earth by confusing the language of their sinful agenda. At the day of Pentecost, we see that God will scatter His people all over the earth. But not because of sin, not because of disobedience, because of His mission of grace. Speaking this language that all will be able to understand. We're scattered for a whole new purpose. And lastly, we see that at the Tower of Babel, that the situation ends with confusion of language and disunity of spirit. But at the day of Pentecost, it ends with a unity of language and a unity of spirit because God has met His people in Jerusalem. He has met His church there. It's this beautiful picture. So what does the Spirit come to do? I was reading an article this week. There's, there's, there's an abundance of roles that the Holy Spirit plays in our life. I just want to share three real quickly with you. The first one is this. The Spirit is given to empower the mission of God. The Spirit is given to empower the mission of God. God gives them a mission in Acts chapter 1 to go to the ends of the world with this good news of the Gospel. And He tells them to wait. He says, hey boys, I know you're anxious. Don't go and get after this just yet. You need to wait because you need power. You need the kind of power that you can't get in the gym, right? You need real spiritual power and you've got to wait on Me for that. So my question to you is this. Does the Spirit seem flat in your life right now? Is it like a carbonated drink that you open up and there's no fizz left? Is that how the Spirit fills in your life right now? I'm speaking from experience, but the times in my life where the Spirit has seemed most flat, I'm not talking about like a momentary instant. I'm talking about a season, a, a length of time where the Spirit has felt flat in my life. It has been when I have been most disconnected from the mission of God. Think about that. If the Spirit was given for the mission for my good and God's glory, when I'm not participating in God's mission or I've closed off God to some active obedience that He's called me to, why would God bless me with, with His presence in those moments? I'm not saying that it goes away. I'm just saying that the awareness of it seems to be lacking a little in those moments when the Spirit feels a little more flat. But in my experience, whenever I've, I've, I've been pursuing God's mission, I'm not saying I do it perfectly, and none of us do, but it's just on our mind we're thinking about what does it look like for God's grace to go to the ends of the world, to the ends of my neighborhood, to the ends of my family, to the ends of my heart. When I get in those moments, it seems like the, the Spirit is just more tangible for some reason. That, this isn't a thus saith the Lord. This is just a, an observation that I've had uh, in my life. And maybe you've had the same in your own. So what do we do in those moments where the Spirit feels flat? Maybe, maybe we repent and we come back to God and say, God, how can I join you in your mission? How can you empower me for that? Because I want more of you in my life. I want to be more aware of your presence in my life. Second thing is this. The Spirit is given to bring oneness with God and His people. 
So together they're, they're sharing the same language and there's this nearness to God. It seems to be in the book of Acts that the Spirit's mission is to magnify the person of Jesus and to make Him non-ignorable in the city. That's why they preach these sermons in the open air. I'm not saying that that's prescriptive for us. It might be. Maybe we need to go down on the square a little bit more. I don't know. But what would it look like for us to make the person of Jesus non-ignorable in the city of Lawrenceville on the block, the 1100th block of Berry Cove Lane in my neighborhood? What would it look like to make the spirit of God, for, for the person of Jesus to be non-ignorable in the Johnson household and to the ends of the world? What would that look like for us to make the person of Jesus non-ignorable in our life? What, what if we gave our life to that? Because it seems to me that that's what the disciples gave their life for. To make the person of Jesus non-ignorable. And did it cost a lot of them a lot? Absolutely. But isn't that what it means to be a Christian? We lay down our life because He's given us His life. And our life now belongs to Him. Thirdly, the Spirit is given to comfort and to convict. In the Scriptures, we see that it's the Spirit that reveals sin to us. Not so that we can run away and be ashamed, but so we can be driven to the cross. Because when we're driven to the cross because we see that we're sinners, what do we do? We depend on Him. Just like what happened at Babel when the language was confused and the people were scattered throughout the world, they had to depend on God instead of themselves. It's the whole purpose of God's agenda for us. is to drive us to the place of dependence. And He will stop at nothing to get us to that place. Will He not? He will stop at nothing to get us to that place because He is gracious and He knows what's best for us. I mean, it's just like yesterday, you know, driving in my, my van. I'm, you know, I got the whole, whole car load full of kids. We're going over to my in-law's house to, to see off Megan's little sister to her senior prom. And, and <clears throat> there's just no joy in my life. It's, it's, you know, I'm trying to manufacture it. I'm trying to pull myself up by the bootstraps. And Megan looks over at me and she says, hey, is everything okay? You doing all right? Everything okay? And, and I kind of looked over and I said, you know, not really. But I don't know why. I don't know why. And, you know, we just kind of came to this conclusion together as we're driving in the, in the car that the enemy is at work. And she was reminding me, when you're about the Father's business, the enemy is going to be at work because he wants, he, he, he wants to deceive. He wants to manipulate. He's the father of lies. He's the accuser of the brethren. So, of course, he's going to be at work when you're on the mission of God. Why would we expect anything less? He convicts. He convicts. He shows us our sin, but He also comforts. Because if He convicted and didn't comfort, that wouldn't be good, would He? But if He comforted and didn't convict, that wouldn't be good either. Because we would depend on ourselves again. He's with us. This is the most beautiful promise of the Holy Spirit that the Scriptures say that He is a deposit. He is a guarantee of the promise that Jesus is going to come back. He's going to return. He's going to redeem us. He's going to make all things new. It's a beautiful promise. You find yourself trying to squeeze life out of Babel right now. You're trying to make a name for yourself. You're building a tower. Whatever it would be. A career, a family, a house. I don't know. You find yourself living in Babel right now. In Babylon. Trying to make a name for yourself. And God seems to be tearing it away one piece at a time. Or have we been born again to a living hope through the Spirit? We'll close by reading Ezekiel 37 to you. So if you have a Bible, turn there. I'm not going to talk much about it because it talks for itself. In Ezekiel chapter 36, 
there's this promise of a new life through the Spirit that's made. It's this, it's this prophecy that is made. And then the Lord does something amazing to the prophet Ezekiel. You know what He does? He burns in His mind a picture, an experience of what it looks like for the Spirit to come upon our lives. So let's read Ezekiel 37. We're going to look at verses 1-10 through 10 together. Just sit back and listen. The hand of the Lord was upon me. This is Ezekiel. And He brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And He led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And He said to me, listen to this question, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, You know. Then He said, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the Word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live and I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and to cover you with skin and to put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and I prophesied and there was a sound. Listen to this. Listen to this portrait that we get. This living experience that we get. Of this experience. Said, I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and the skin covered them. And the sound, I'm sorry, verse 7. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and the flesh had come upon them, and the skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, Son of Man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds. And breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as He commanded. And the breath came into them. And they lived and stood on their feet. An exceedingly great army. This is the picture of what it looks like to dwell, to live, to be in Christ's kingdom. To be filled with the Spirit. He takes the deadness of our lives. He takes the deadness of Babylon and He speaks life into the deadness to the valley of dry bones He enters in and He speaks His Spirit into our lives and He raises us to life and the bones rattle and sinews and skin are laid on us and then He breathes the breath of life into us. And we look at, we look at the Father when He does this and we say, what have I done to deserve this? What have I done? What, what have I done? And if we think that we're not that valley of dry bones apart from Jesus, friends, we're just the walking dead. That's all we are. We're just zombies. We can walk in Babylon, but we'll never walk in the kingdom of heaven without the Holy Spirit bringing life to us. So the invitation today is to come. It's to come and be filled with the life, the universal language of the Holy Spirit where God speaks His truth into our bones and we get to experience God on a day-to-day -day basis. The invitation is to come. If, you've, if you're in that valley of dry bones right now, you've not received Jesus, the invitation is to come. If the Spirit seems flat in your life, the invitation is to come and to, and to experience the power of God's presence anew.
So let's pray together uh, as we continue in worship. Father, we thank You that You meet us, that You speak a language that we cannot speak on our own, that You make the person of Jesus non-ignorable in our lives because He is the exact image of God as the Scriptures say. This isn't something that that we just treat lackadaisically because You've breathed that breath into our bones, into our lives. And because of that, we are alive. God, remind us that we're alive and Your Spirit is dwelling with us forever as a deposit, as a guarantee, as a comforter. Even as He convicts and draws us closer to the Father so we might depend on Him more and more. God, meet us this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.